0: On March 10th, 1998, the American band Semisonic released the song that would become their best known ballad. The song is called Closing Time. Let me play you just a little piece of the song. Every new beginning comes from some other beginning's Closing time. Closing time reached number one on the alternative chart in 1999. And when I looked that up, I thought, I can't believe it was that long ago. I feel like it was just a couple of weeks ago. But anyway, the song Closing Time ends with that refrain we just played. Every new beginning comes from some other beginning's end. Now, when I heard that for the first time, I thought that is the most profound thing I have ever heard in a song. Apparently, it was. Because right around the time of Jesus, it was coined by the Stoic philosopher named Seneca. Every new beginning comes from some other beginning's end. Everything starts somewhere, everything has a starting point. You had a starting point, I had a starting point. Relationships have a starting point. Later on this year, Beth and I are celebrating. The 30th anniversary of our starting point of our marriage. Okay, that was, I kind of feel like I was pandering. I didn't mean that, but I appreciate it. If you're married, your marriage had a starting point too. And if you work, your career had a starting point. And your parenting had a starting point. I could keep going with this as you probably could imagine. But you get the point. Everything had a starting point. But what we forget sometimes is that faith also has a starting point. Your faith, whatever your faith is, had a starting point. For many, your faith starting point happened in childhood. That, that's really the way it usually goes. And you hear people say it all the time. I was born Catholic, or I was born Jewish, or I was born Hindu, or I was born Buddhist, or whatever. Some people have their starting point right at birth from their family of origin. Now, some have a faith that began with a conversation. Maybe it was a conversation with a teacher or a parent or a priest or a pastor. Some people have a starting point in Bible school or Bible camp or vacation Bible school. Some people have a starting point in Christian school or or Catholic school. But generally, somewhere in your childhood, either somebody told you something that started your faith journey or maybe just over time you cobbled it together based on your own experiences and your own observations. And for many people the starting point included platitudes. Things like, God is good. You probably heard something like that as a child. You you might have even learned this super spiritual prayer before a meal. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. It doesn't rhyme. I mean, spelling works, but it doesn't rhyme when you say it. Or maybe you use the equally pious good... Bread, good meat, good God, let's eat. You've heard this before? Okay. Somebody along the way probably told you this. They probably told you, God rewards good and he punishes evil. So you better be good. And depending on what kind of religion you grew up in, the warning that God punishes bad people gave rise to all kinds of things that scared you to death. And in fact, maybe the tradition in which you grew up Told you that for the exact purpose of scaring the H-E-L-L out of you. Yes, I'm a grown-up and I just spelled that out. But they told you that so you would be good. You likely also heard some version of God answers your prayers. Now, now I'm telling you all this to say that we all had in one form or another a starting point when it comes to our faith. But then something happens. We grow up. We get older. And the starting point of a childhood faith begins to crumble. It begins to take a hit. For many, that childhood faith struggled under the challenges and pressures of adult life. I mean, they don't tell you all this stuff when you're a kid. When you're a kid, all you want to do is be a grown-up. And when you're a grown-up, all you want to do is be a kid. Remember when you were young and you hated napping? And now if you're grown, napping is a mini vacation that you just can't wait to take. (laughs) And when you're a kid, the stories that meant so much to you just begin to fall apart. And the foundation that you were given that might have seemed so firm when you were a child doesn't hold up for adults. Because while God is good, there are a lot of things in this world that to the untrained eye make God seem like he's not doing anything about. And when we're faced with having to reconcile a bad world with a good God, things get a little prickly, don't they? Hey, God, I know you're supposed to punish evil and reward good, but there's a lot of evil in the world that seems to go rewarded. And there's a lot of good in the world that seems to be punished. You've heard the expression, no good deed goes unpunished, right? There's No rest for the wicked. You've heard that one too. We have all these really weird spiritual sayings. And you say to God, God, there's a lot of good in my life. I do a lot of good. I thought you're going to reward me because I was told if I did the right things, the right things would happen all the time, but I did all the right things and the right things didn't happen for me. And I heard you answer prayer, but you don't answer my prayer. So God, I'm not sure what to do with that. Life can Chip away at our faith. And sometimes life chips it away to the place where it doesn't exist at all. There's this whole movement online. I don't know if you're following it, but there's this whole movement online where people are just, they call it deconstructing their faith. Saying all these things I was taught, I'm going to take apart because I don't believe it anymore. And sometimes we end up feeling that our childhood faith just doesn't seem relevant in the world in which we live. And as a result, we get to adulthood with this incoherent understanding of God. So when we attained intellectual maturity, we, many of us reject this inherited God from our childhood. Many of us deny that he ever existed in the first place. That somehow everything else matured around us, but our view of God never matured. As everything else matured around us. The Bible stories we were told as children, well... They didn't mature along with us. And we developed all these irreconcilable differences. And in a court of law, if you have the irreconcilable differences with your spouse, that's grounds for divorce. And we get to this place where there's this gap between what we experienced and what we were told to believe. And we didn't mean to leave faith behind. We never decided not to believe anymore. We never decided not to behave anymore. It's just that our beliefs just seem less and less relevant the older we got. And because of that phenomenon we've all been impacted to some extent and because of it adults often need a brand new starting point for faith that's why we're doing this series for the next few weeks we're going to hit the restart button and ask the question what if we didn't know anything where would we start What if we'd never heard any of the Bible stories? Where would we start? What if we'd never read the Bible at all? Where would we start? What if we'd never gone to church? Where would we start? Well, today we're going to hit the restart button. We're going to start all over and we're going to do it together. And we're going to learn some new things. We're going to hear some challenging things. I'm going to say some things that you're going to go, whoa, I can't believe you said that. You're going to hear things that'll bug you. You're going to hear things that you haven't heard before. You're going to hear things that make you think. And it's my hope that for everyone who is struggling to reconcile the real adult world with the faith that you profess, you'll see that they are actually easily reconcilable. Once we learn to approach things a little bit differently, than perhaps we approach them as children. Because starting off with faith like a child is quite different than starting off with faith as an adult. So today we're calling the message something happened. All right, so let's pray, and then we'll get going. Father God, thank you for gathering us together this morning. Thank you for giving us this opportunity to join as your ecclesia, as your people, to understand you a little bit better, to learn to follow you more deeply, to get rid of some of the doubts that we have coming into faith, because God, we know that you are worthy, you are good, you are capable, you are able, and it's you that will guide us closer and closer. So God, as we continue on this morning, we ask that you would open our hearts and minds and allow us to know you better in Jesus name. Amen. All right. So here's the first thing we're going to address today. We're going to address the way in which children are taught the Bible. Now at the outset, and some of you guys know me already, my situation was a little bit different, little unique. I wasn't taught about the Bible in the same way that Christians are taught about the Bible. Now, as a child, I was introduced to many of the Old Testament stories. Although, quite frankly, I didn't realize that they were called Old Testament stories or Hebrew Bible stories or that they had anything to do with God whatsoever. But I learned about Adam and Eve and Noah and the Tower of Babel and Abraham, Sarah and Isaac. And, of course, the Passover, that is the preeminent Jewish holiday. But I was taught these things as Jewish history. I was not taught that they had something to do with God. In fact, I didn't know they had anything to do with God. And when I became an adult, it was easier for me to push those stories into the back of my mind because they were just stories I heard as a kid. But when it comes to teaching Christian kids, we do things a little bit differently. But the results are exactly the same. We teach Christian kids that there's this really, really important book called the Bible. And we tell them that it is the unquestionable word of God. And then we coerce them into memorizing out of context sentences from it. And I know because I thought about it, the word coerce is a fairly harsh word. But let's be honest. Very few children would be interested in memorizing random sentences from a grown-up book that they don't understand unless we bribe them with praise or candy or badges or toys or games or public recognition. We do that all the time. That's what we do when we teach kids Bible verses. And by the way, I did the same thing with my kids. We tell the kids that this book that we talk about is infallible, by the way, which we do believe it is. We tell them that there are no mistakes in it, which we believe is true for the original text. We tell them that it is inspired by God, which again, we do believe we know that's true. And when we teach them about Adam and Eve and Noah and Moses and Jesus, including the fact that Jesus is coming back one day, we teach it all in the same way. We teach it all in equal terms. We teach it all as being equally important. But unfortunately, because the Bible was presented to kids as a book, which it is not, ironically, because it was all presented as this one holistic thing, which it is not. The Bible is not just one holistic thing. And because kids don't understand where it came from, their faith can be just a house of cards. Meaning that all someone has to do is pull away a couple of the foundational pieces and the whole thing just comes tumbling down. And then they go off to college. Or then they go into the workplace and they get caught up following some charismatic speaker Now it's a charismatic speaker in person or a charismatic speaker online. Can't tell you how many parents I talk to whose kids are following some charismatic, supposedly Christian pastor online, and they've just come up with all these crazy ideas. And even though it's something to appreciate, it's not something that's factual. We think the Bible, okay, I appreciate it, but come on, this isn't factual. And even though the Bible has stories that are inspirational, we think, well, they're not necessarily true. And then what happens is people experience life on on top of all that. And there begins to be more and more distance between what they experience and what they believe growing up. Even if somebody grew up in a home where the Bible was revered, maybe they never saw anybody actually read the Bible. Go figure that. They saw it as a book that you respect. If you have it on the coffee table, don't put your Coke on top of it. But they never learned to read it themselves. Or maybe they went to a church where somebody opened up the Bible week after week, and and they sat in church and sensed that they were saying something important there, but they didn't really understand it. And then they went into an environment that didn't respect it, and all of a sudden, along with their childhood faith, that starting point that seems so relevant when they were young suddenly just evaporates, goes away. This is what happens with so many kids. And just in case you haven't figured it out yet, it's the same thing that might have happened to you. So so here's where we're going to be for the next few weeks. The Bible says, how many times have you ever heard that? Well, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says is not an adequate starting point or returning point for many adults. For many adults, it is not enough For me to say to you, okay, I'm going to restart your faith. The Bible says, because you're going to go, all right, no, 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 no. I already did that. I grew up on the Bible says, but let me tell you about my job. Or let me tell you about my, my divorce. or let me tell you about my children. Or let me tell you about my health. Or let me tell you about my unanswered prayers. And they're going to say, Russell, if we're going to try and restart my faith, starting with the Bible says, I'm simply not interested. And I get that. It might've been adequate. For kids, but it doesn't work for many, many adults. But there is good news. And this is where we're going to go today as we begin this starting point series. The Bible says was never intended to be a starting point for Christian faith. The words the Bible says were never, ever intended to be such. Indeed, that wasn't the starting point when Christianity began. And today and for the next few weeks, we're going to give everyone the opportunity to kind of put on your thinking cap. You're going to be challenged a bit. If you're a skeptic and you've written off the Bible a long time ago, you might want to reconsider some things. And for those of you who are out there thinking, I hope I learned something that reignites a a passionate, almost childlike faith in God. I think today and for the next few weeks, you're going to be pleasantly surprised. So now I want to start with this. The New Testament, okay, the New Testament, where we get everything we know about Christianity was not compiled until 350 years after the events of Jesus' life. 350 years. Remember, the United States is what, 240 years old? 242, three years old? 242, I think it is, Uh, 1789. So... 350 years, that's longer than the U.S. has even been around. That means that for about 350 years of Christianity, nobody could say, well, the Bible says, nobody could say, well, the New Testament says, because there was no New Testament. You're going to hear me say that again, because it's really hard to believe based on the way we've been brought up or based on what we've been teaching our children. And while it is true, there were documents in existence, right? Paul wrote letters and they were circulating around and The gospels were written down and they were circulating around. But hundreds of thousands of people became Jesus followers, not because the Bible said. Because there was no Bible to say anything, okay? There was no New Testament. This is really important. Christians gathered together with extraordinary faith. Faith that would put ours to shame and they couldn't. Open their Bibles. Open your Bibles too. They couldn't do that. There were no Bibles. For those first 350 years, the starting point of the Christian faith had absolutely nothing to do with the word of God as we refer to it. It had absolutely nothing to do with an inerrant script or an infallible New Testament because it didn't exist. So the question is, what was their starting point? How did they come to a faith in Jesus, How did they become Christians? Because there was no Bible that served as a starting point for their faith. So today we're going to answer that question. Because for many of us, their starting point will need to be our starting point. And simply saying the Bible says and therefore you ought to may not be an adequate starting point for some of you who are adults. Because that's how your faith started as a child. And you've seen what your life did to that fragile Childhood faith based on scripture as it was presented. Now, before we go on, I want you to hear this. Nobody means any harm when they, when we teach things that way. And nobody is wrong when they or we teach things that way. It's, it's, it's just that they presented something to you as a child, the way you would present something to a child. You know that when we talk to children, sometimes we speak differently. We, we kind of condescend. We talk down to children Martin Luther famously said that the Bible is God's way of talking down to us. Because if he spoke in his godliness, we wouldn't understand what he was saying. It would be way over our heads. So he, 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 used to, he said it this way. He said, in the Bible, God, God talks baby talk. The German word is, is the word that for lisp. God talks baby talk. So that's what we do. So we present these things to children. And then nobody comes along afterwards and helps them take that and then turn it into an adult faith. Got all that? All right, so now what we're going to do is we're going to listen into a conversation between the Apostle Paul and a group of people that had never even heard about Jesus. A group of people who knew nothing about Jesus. This conversation took place just about 20 years after the resurrection. That is a short amount of time. If you're under the age of 20, you think it's a long amount of time. It is not. For those of you who are about my age, you go, 20 years? Like I said, closing time was more than 20 years ago. So this is really current for them. We'll be reading from the book of Acts. Now, I just got done telling you because the Bible says, and now I'm telling you we're reading from the Bible. So not contradictory because as we've talked about before, even though Acts is a book in the New Testament, what Acts is really is, is kind of a travel journal. It was written by Luke the doctor who traveled with the Apostle Paul. And Luke documented everything that happened as Paul moved around through the Mediterranean Rim, sharing the gospel, creating communities of Jesus followers. But there was no New Testament when Acts was written. But Luke knew what he knew because of who he knew. And Paul, about whose activities Luke wrote, knew what he knew about Jesus, not because of what he read in a book, but because of who he knew. Paul knew Peter. Paul knew John. Paul knew James, who was Jesus' brother. Paul met Jesus himself. What Paul knew about Jesus came from the people he knew because he lived in the lifetime in which they lived. He was right there. He lived before any of this was written down. It's interesting. Paul's writings predate the writings of the gospel by about 10 years. So Paul's letters were written before even Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written. It's mostly undisputed that Paul was a real person, that he was a historical figure, and he wrote his letters in the mid, early to mid-50s AD, just a few years after the events of the gospel. But he didn't learn about Jesus from the Bible. He learned about Jesus from the people who knew Jesus. And then one afternoon, Paul finds himself in Athens, Greece, and while wandering around, he saw something that disturbed him deeply, and he struck up a conversation. And that conversation was recorded for us to read in this travel journal that we call the Book of Acts, which hundreds of years later became part of the New Testament. So it bears remembering here that Paul wasn't always the Apostle Paul. He was a Pharisee. ...who hated Christians. I know you've been taught Paul back then was Saul... ...and then he became Paul. That's not exactly true. Saul, Shaul, was just his Hebrew name... ...and Paul was just his Greek name. But he didn't become somebody new and somebody different. But we kind of look at it that way because it helps us remember. But he was a Pharisee who hated Christians. His life's work was to stamp out the church... ...stamp out the people who, hate, who believed in Jesus. But instead, he became a believer himself... And he didn't become a believer because he read read the Bible, because the Bible wasn't written yet. I know I keep saying that, but I want you to understand, because it's almost sacrilegious to say in a church, the Bible told me so is not good enough. It's always been good enough. But Paul became a believer because of something that happened. So we're going to listen to his conversation. But our goal today is not to convert anybody or not for you to believe anything is true. Our goal is simply this, to listen how someone who knew people who knew Jesus presented the message of Christianity to a group of people who'd never heard of any of it before. This is the complete tabla rasa, is the Latin, it's the blank slate, the clean slate. Because in this conversation we're about to listen to, we actually get to the heart. We get to the starting point of the Christian faith. All right, you ready for that? Know where we're going? So while Paul was waiting for his friends, Silas and Timothy, to join him in Athens, he was greatly distressed. Because he was in this city and he noticed that the city was filled with idols. Remember the Greeks and the Romans, they had this, this panoply of gods. They just had this, this group of gods. And you remember your Greek and Roman mythology and all the you know, Hercules and all this sort of stuff. Th- those were all the, the gods in the panoply of gods. The city was full of idols. There were idols everywhere. And Paul had been reasoning with the Jews in the synagogues and with the God-fearing Greeks. So again, there were, uh, we talked about that in our baptism sermon last week. There are a lot of Greeks who wanted to become Jews, so they would go to the synagogue and they would essentially convert. That's our word, new word. So Paul, was, he would go to the town, he would talk to them in the synagogue first, speak to his people, and then he'd go out and speak to the other people about a faith in Jesus. So after he finished up in the synagogues, he went into the public square. And he went out there to reason with anyone that he could engage. In conversation. Now, interestingly, if you walk into a public square today and you just start trying to talk to people about Jesus, they're going to look at you like you are crazy. Okay. But then it was different because the public square was all they had. They didn't have an internet. They didn't have Twitter. They didn't have places to talk. This, this was how they did it. This was their Twitter As they got in they engaged in conversations. Now, Athens was a city filled with philosophers. So it wasn't very hard to engage in a conversation if you went into the town center in Athens and tried to. Okay, so here we go. Acts chapter 17, verse 18. You can read it on your Bible or you can read it on the screen. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with Paul. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So you see what I'm talking about? See, Luke is writing this as a travel journal. Here's what happened today. Paul goes into the town square. There were Stoics and there were Epicureans. And there, this, is, this is pretty straightforward. Now, who are, the, who are those people? The Epicureans believe that events in the natural world may have multiple causes that are all equally possible and probable. They believed essentially, hey, we don't have the answers about the world, but who cares? Just have a nice day, enjoy yourself. That's Epicurean belief, okay? The Stoic philosophers, well, their attitude was basically, if you give us enough time, we can figure the world out. But in the meantime, we're going to follow all the rules. So that's what you see those words. We still use them in in modern language. You know, you're very Stoic. That means you follow the rules. So that's kind of how that works. So Paul met a group of those philosophers, and he began to debate them. And some of them asked, what's this babbler trying to say? Why did they call him a babbler? Because they'd never heard any of this stuff before. What The stuff he was saying was brand new stuff. And they were starting from the beginning. So we're right before their starting point. They knew nothing. Other people said, I think he's trying to advocate for a foreign god. That's a big deal. Because if a person was going to introduce a new god to the panoply of gods in Athens, he had to get permission. He had to get permission from the government. Isn't that weird? Hmm. We're not going that way because in the past in cities like Athens, when somebody came in with this new idea, it could split the city. It it could start a civil war. It could divide families. It could destroy lives. So if somebody wanted to come in and introduce a new idea, they had to go to the government and say, I'm going to introduce a new idea. Please may I have permission? So Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and about the resurrection. And it sounded like a new religion to them. Again, Everything Paul knew about Jesus came from people who knew Jesus. Everything Paul believed about the resurrection came from people who saw a risen Jesus. Nobody had read anything. There was nothing to read at that point in history. We move on to verse 19. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are Presenting. Okay. In other words, they said, listen, this is totally new to us. We want you to start from the beginning and explain everything to us because we've never heard any of this before. This is something that actually happened. And it happened at the Areopagus In Athens, the Areopagus, we translate that to Mars Hill, was a revered place in Athens. By the way, Athens, Greece. Like, you could go there tomorrow if you bought a ticket and flew to Athens, Greece. Like, the city is still there. But the Areopagus was considered a special place in the city. It was considered a place of judgment. They actually held civil trials outside at the Areopagus. They made important decisions at the Areopagus. If they were going to do something new to the city, this is where the city council would meet to make the decisions. This is an important place for the people of Athens. So they took Paul to this very spot to decide whether or not they're going to allow him to spread this brand new idea because no one in Athens had ever heard about it before. All right? Okay, story continues. We go to verse 20. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. And then verse 21 is this parenthetical. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Boy, does that sound like the Internet or what? Like they spent their whole day standing around arguing about ideas. In other words, would you please, for our benefit and for the benefit of the city council and the elders of the city, can you start from the beginning? Like, tell us where you're coming from. This, this, is, this is so cool. This is 20 years after Jesus rose from the dead. And somebody was explaining the whole Jesus story to people who knew nothing about it. But this is their starting point And we can see it in this chapter 17 of the book of Acts. And then Paul starts up in the meeting of the Areopagus. And here's what he says. So this is direct quote from Paul. People of Athens. You ever have to give somebody bad news? Anybody in human resources or anybody ever been fired? I have. And they kind of make a sandwich out of it. They give you good news, and then they give you bad news, and then they put a little good news under it, and then they send you on your way. So here's the good news. Here's where Paul starts. I can see that in every way, you people are very religious. This is a big compliment. He's puffing them up here. Because I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, and I even found an altar with this inscription. So there was an altar to a god, but it said to an unknown god. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Now, by the way, ignorant, that was not an insult. It just basically meant you're uninformed. You don't know who it is that you're worshiping, but you're still worshiping. See, they had altars all over the city to all these different gods, and they they tried to keep them straight, but then they put up an altar to an unknown god in case they missed one. Right, It's sort of the belt and suspenders, the just-in-case altar. Just in case they missed the God, they built an altar to an unknown God. That is really weird, but that's what they did. Who's the altar for? I don't know. But if he shows up, then we can say, oh, we were expecting you. Here's your altar. Now, it's interesting. Before we laugh too hard at the silliness of it, a lot of people come to church on just Christmas and Easter using the same logic. Don't they? I'm not sure about this whole God thing, but I'm going to go to church on Christmas and Easter just in case it's true. Right? Not you guys, because it's not Christmas and Easter, and you're here, of course. And leveraging their uncertainty, here's what Paul said. Listen, I know you people are very religious, and I know you're really inquisitive, good people who want to worship God, but you aren't sure about who he is. So you've just been guessing all this time. Well, I'm going to help you with that. I'm going to tell you all about the God that you seek. And with that, Paul begins to tell them about the one true God, verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. Remember, you're talking about ancient Greece. You're talking about lots of temples built to lots of gods. Okay. Verse 25. And he's not served by human hands as if he needs anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else from one man he made all nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. So Paul's essentially telling them this unknown God is the God who made the world. This unknown God is the God who made everything in the world. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. This unknown God is too big to live in a temple, to be contained in a temple built by human hands. This unknown God is bigger than the rest of all of your gods put together. He doesn't fit in a temple you made for him. This big, fantastic, complicated, complex world actually is a reflection of that God's greatness and glory. And even though you can discover a lot about God in his creation, you won't find him in the creation because he's too big for that. And he's not served by human hands as if he needs anything from humans. Your sacrifices to him, the bribes you try to give him to receive his favor, they're all futile. God doesn't need any of that. This is a God that is self-sustaining. This is a God that sustains the universe. This is a God who gives everyone life. And breath and everything else, he's made every one of us, every nation, from one man. And he's determined the time, place, and manner in which every person from every people group will live and move and breathe. Now, by the way, isn't it cool that 2,000, give or take years later... DNA research has discovered that indeed, we all do come from one set of DNA. That's amazing. And they thought it was too. So Paul had their rapt attention at that moment. And he continues in verse 27. God did this so that they, these people, would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. God did all of this so people would come after him. So people would seek him. By the way, don't, Think about it theologically, the word seek. This word seek is a Greek word that just meant to grope around in the dark. So you're going to feel around for God because you're feeling called to him and you just don't know where he is. And that's why he ends with this God is close by to find. And then Paul reaches into their own secular culture. And this is kind of cool because a lot of times, and I believe in this theory, when we're talking to people in this secular culture, we need to speak in language that they understand. So we do borrow from the secular culture. I just showed you as we started a, a, a song from a secular band to make a spiritual point. So Paul does the same thing right here in verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being... Here it is, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So he's quoting poets that they know so that they understand the concept of God in their language. He's not quoting from the New Testament. Why? Because there was no New Testament. But he quoted from a source that they don't relate to. Now, Paul lets them know that their inquisitiveness puts them on the right path. But then he explains the way in which the true God was just bigger and more powerful than their puny gods the true god was much greater than the images that they'd made out of stone or precious metals verse 29 therefore since we are god's offspring we should not think of that we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone an image made by human design and skill in the past god overlooked such ignorance but now he commands all people everywhere to repent all right so up until that point God had overlooked their useless gestures, their genuflecting, but bowing down to statues and and things like that. But God had just done something, the resurrection, that demanded their immediate attention. And the prior ignorance that they carried around was no longer an excuse because it was the time for them to repent and turn to the one true God. Now, let me stop here. Got to be careful when you're reading the Bible. This is why taking verses out of context is a dangerous exercise. That's called proof texting. Paul's not talking about repenting from sin here. You can tell because he doesn't mention sin anywhere. He's talking about repenting. What he means is you need to change your minds. You need to turn. That's what repenting means. It means turning. Okay? Because God had done something different. We go to verse 31. He has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He'd been talking about Jesus. So now we know who that is. And he's given proof of this to everyone. God has set a day when he would judge the world by Jesus, the man who he'd given authority to, to judge the world with justice. So Paul is on a roll here. He is just cranking. People are quiet. People are listening. But Paul said he was going to provide proof. He said that God provided proof, proof. And I must, I got to imagine people are going, "Whoa, whoa, 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 wait a minute, Paul. Proof? You had us going for a minute there, but proof? We're talking about religion. There's no proof in religion. The people of Athens must have been thinking, Paul, (laughs) that's why we came up with the unknown God in the first place. I mean, we believe, yeah. And we we try to have faith, for sure. And we try to do the right things. We try to keep the gods happy. But you're saying that somehow this new thing that you're telling us about has proof? You, You must mean evidence, Paul you're saying that God has made all this stuff and he knows all this stuff and he's bigger than our nation, even the world. And there's proof. You can't possibly, you can't possibly mean that. You're telling us that you have certainty. We can have certainty to which Paul said, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I'm telling you. That's why I left the comforts of home because now in this age and in this generation, God has done something. Proof. There's proof. Proof means something different from hope. Proof moves us from hope so, because that's religion. Religion is, I hope this is right, to know so. That's confidence. And they replied, all right, Paul, you got our attention. Tell us what this God has done so we can have that kind of certainty too. What's the proof? What's the proof that God sent a man that's righteous enough and just enough to judge the world? Where's your proof? And Paul said he has given proof of this to everyone By raising him from the dead. And with that, they sat back. Paul's message was Folks, I didn't read about this because no one's written about it yet. I wasn't told this by someone who knew somebody, who knew somebody, who knew a cousin, who knew an uncle, who knew a friend. I came from the place where it happened. And I've had conversations with the eyewitnesses and I'm here in Athens, absolutely convinced that God has done something on the planet. He raised the man from the dead to give us proof that he is who he says he is. And he is not just a Jew for the Jews. He's a man sent from God to the whole world. Now, if this was just a Bible story, the ending would go a little differently. The people in the crowd, if this were just a Bible story, would have fallen on their faces and repented right there on the spot. We believe, and they would have just dropped to the ground. But they didn't do that because this isn't just a Bible story. It's a retelling of something that really happened to people who really existed. So we go to verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. Can we all sneer? Right? Newscasters like to sneer. Some of them sneered. Of course they sneered. Because generally, when people die, they typically stay what? Dead. Yeah, you guys all got that one, right? Yeah, that's why you sneer. Someone in the crowd is saying, wait, seriously? The proof is that somebody rose from the dead? You got to be kidding me. People don't rise from the dead. You got to be kidding me. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And with that, Paul left. That's the end of the story. That's the end of the tale. From there, some people tapped out. Some people were like, look, if that's your starting point that you set us up for, we're not interested. If that's what we have to believe, we'd rather go back to unknowing. That's crazy that dead men get up and walk. But some said, you're telling me that you know people? You're telling me that you've talked to people who were there and saw a resurrection with their own eyes? And Paul told them, listen, I didn't believe it at first either. I made it my life's work to get rid of those people. I made it my life's work to get rid of anybody who did believe it. But then I met the risen Jesus. And I'm here to tell you that God's done something in our generation as proof that he knows us, he loves us, and he can be known. All right, let's land this plane. The starting point for the Christian faith isn't the Bible. The starting point for the Christian faith isn't blind belief. The starting point for the Christian faith, whether they told you this in childhood or not, is a question. And that question is simply this: Who is Jesus? It's not is the Bible true. So when you're having a discussion with somebody and they say, "Wait a minute, you can't believe this. There's so many mistakes in the Bible and blah blah blah." That's not the point. The question isn't is all the Bible true. The question is who is Jesus? And so when Paul had this one opportunity with people who didn't know anything about the biblical story, he started with creation. And he started with the fact that God cares. He explained how something happened. And if you have a hard time believing it, which, of course, you do, God proved it because he knew we'd be skeptical. And God raised that man from the dead because that man is savior and Lord of all of us. And the starting point for the Christian faith, that's the question. That's the question. It will always be the question. Who is Jesus? Regardless of what happened to your Sunday school faith, regardless of what happened in your past, regardless of your unanswered prayers, regardless of the fact that God doesn't always seem good or that he doesn't always seem to reward good or that he doesn't always seem to reward evil. Those are fascinating topics, and we can talk about them. I like talking about that stuff. We talk about it all the time. But the main question is, who do you think Jesus is? Because once you answer that question, many of the other questions begin to answer themselves. So Paul left them that day with the question to wrestle with, who is Jesus? And that's where we're going to leave it today. But this is starting point, so we're just getting started. So let me pray for you. Then I have a little announcement, and then we'll go. Heavenly Father, thank you for preserving this text. Thank you for preserving this interaction. And thank you for taking us to the issue that's always been the issue. That we've allowed to get pushed out by other issues and other questions. And the issue is, who is Jesus? Because if there's a resurrected Savior, that does change everything. Father, help us keep our hearts and eyes and minds open as we continue on in this series in Jesus name amen